Okay, well, uh, as we saw, uh, we are starting uh, a a five-week series on the life of the Old Testament prophet called Elisha, and we've subtitled it, A Tale of Ridiculous Faith. And I want to say very sincerely that I genuinely believe that for many of you, the next five weeks will be a defining moment in your relationship with God. Really, I have one main goal in this series, and that's to allow God's Word to massively strengthen, stretch, and expand your faith. So that's where we're going. That's my agenda, uh, and I hope you're up for it. If you've got a Bible with you, perhaps you'd turn with me to 1 Kings, uh, and we're going to be camping out today in chapter 19. Uh, Before we uh, dive right into the text, let me very quickly give you a little bit of the background. Let me catch you up with the story so far. There was a guy called Elijah. Uh, Some people get Elisha confused with Elijah. They're actually two separate characters. Elijah, as we've been seeing over the last couple of months, was one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. Uh, He was bold. He was daring. He was courageous. He was a man full of faith. And Elijah wanted to be like Elijah. Uh, And and Elisha was bold enough to ask for a double portion of Elijah's anointing. And God God gave Elisha what he asked for. And Elisha went on to perform more recorded miracles than anyone else in the whole Bible, with the exception of Jesus. As we're going to see, Elisha was an extraordinary character. But what's interesting about Elisha, he was actually actually very, very ordinary. It wasn't like some sort of outward spiritual giant. He was an ordinary guy who was living at home with his parents, working on a farm, when God called him to do something incredible. Let's pick up the story in 1 Kings 9 verse 15. Then the Lord told Elijah, go back the same way you came, travel to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive there, anoint Hazael to be king of Aram. Then anoint Jehu, grandson of Nimshi, to be king of Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from the town of Abel-Meholah, to replace you as my prophet. Anyone who escapes from Hazael will be killed by Jehu, and those who escape Jehu will be killed by Elisha. Yet I'll preserve 7,000 others in Israel who have never bowed down to Baal or kissed him. So Elijah went and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, plowing a field. There were 12 teams of oxen in the field, and Elisha was plowing with the 12th team. Elijah went over to him and threw his cloak across his shoulders and then walked away. Elisha left the oxen standing there, ran after Elijah, and said to him, first let me go and kiss my father and mother goodbye, and then I'll go with you. Elijah replied, go on back, but think about what I've done to you. And so Elisha returned to his oxen and slaughtered them. He used the wood from the plow to build a fire to roast their flesh. He passed around the meat to the townspeople, and they all ate. Then he went with Elijah as his assistant. Now, I want to try and get into this story. I want to try and visualize, imagine what Elisha's life was like. Uh, This passage tells us he was working on his parents' farm. He was driving this yoke of oxen. Just, Just think for a moment about the monotony 
of plowing behind a yoke of oxen every single day. Think about it for starters. What do you smell if you're doing that? Any suggestions? Oxen residue. That's what you smell. What do you see? What was your scenery every day if you're walking behind oxen? Don't say anything bad. You, you, You see oxen rears. You see oxen behinds. Now, in case you're having a hard time visualizing this, we live in a city, don't see a whole lot of oxen wandering around the streets of Boeing. Here's a picture that might help you, okay? This is your view every single day. Now, some of you may feel a little bit like Elisha. You're not looking at oxen rears, but you are doing the same thing day in, day out. And it gets really, 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 really monotonous. You're going to do the same job, working with the same people. You're like, it feels like I'm staring at oxen rears. A quick tip, don't call your work colleagues oxen rears. It won't go well, and that is not what I'm suggesting you do an application of this message. But that is kind of the way you feel. Some of you may be your in sales and it's just relentless. It's day in, day out. You, you hit your target and then it starts all over again and you hit your target and it starts all over again. You're like, this is so monotonous. All, all I ever do is try and live up to the standards set by other people. I hit those standards, I hit those targets and then it starts all over again. Some of you, you might be at school, perhaps you're a student, you think, what do I do? Well, I, I go to lessons, I study, I do the homework, hand it in, and I have to go to more lessons, do even more study, do even more homework, hand it in, and it just goes on and on and on. The equivalent of oxen rears everywhere. Those of you that are parents of young children, what do you see all day long? <laughs> Not oxen rears, but <laughs> nappies, laundry, nappies, laundry, nappies, and you start to think it's incredibly easy to lose your passion and your vision and your zeal when all you see is the equivalent of oxen rears. And this is precisely where Elisha was. But despite that, I want you to notice that he was being faithful in the task at hand. You know, I believe with all my heart that God loves to reward those who are faithful in the little things. There are people in this room right now, God looks down, he sees your faithfulness, he applauds from heaven your faithfulness in the little things. And it's like when you're faithful with just a little, God then thinks, well, I can trust that person with so much more. And so with Elisha, even though it might not have been the the favorite thing to do, even though it could have been incredibly draining physically, He was faithful. And in the middle of his faithful daily routine, God sent something new to take him from where he was into this ridiculous place of impact. Verse 19, end of the verse says this, Elijah, remember this, this, this great man of God that Elisha would have looked up to and respected. Elijah went over to Elisha and threw his cloak across his shoulders. Now what in the world does that mean? Well, his cloak would have been like a coat made out of animal skins. Uh, This was like his covering. It kept him warm. 
Uh, and what Elijah did was he took his covering and he placed it on Elisha to kind of symbolically say, that which covered me will now cover you. That which was the mantle on me will now be the mantle on you. That which I was under, now you will be under. You'll be my student, I'll be your mentor. As God's been working through me, now God's going to work through you. And so he put his mantle, he put his covering over Elisha. Now in the time that remains, at least while I'm speaking, I want to apply this whole story directly into your life. I want to try and show you three principles from this story for obeying God's call on your life. Because whether you realize it or not, whether you believe it or not, there is a call of God on your life. Number one, if you're taking notes, I would just say on this, please do take notes. I'd encourage you to, to come on a Sunday ready and expectant, prepared to hear from God. And if you're expecting you're going to hear from God, why not make a note of it? Because if you're anything like me, you'll hear it in a moment, you'll be challenged, you think, oh, that's inspiring, you need to do something about that, and then forget it completely. Maybe you're not like me, maybe your memory's better, but I'd encourage you, come ready, expectant, to hear from God on a Sunday. And if you're expectant, uh, have something to write down, whether it's your phone, and that way you can be kind of doing other stuff and pretending you're listening, but uh, don't, no, don't do that. Uh, but whether it's on your phone or old-fashioned parchment or scroll or whatever, take some notes, expect God to speak, and then over the week, look at your notes. What did God say? What am I going to do as a result of this? So if you're taking notes, excellent, write this down. First point, you are called to become something before you're called to do something. Do you get that? You're called to become something before you're called to do something. Here's what's so fascinating. Verse 16, Elijah anoints Elisha to succeed him as a prophet. Verse 21, Elisha leaves everything and becomes Elijah's assistant. Then you read on in 1 Kings. There is absolutely no mention of Elisha for the rest of 1 Kings. You have to read on four whole chapters, getting into 2 Kings chapter 2, the best part of 20 years elapses before we get another mention of Elisha. It's like there is a call to being and there is a call to doing. And the greater the doing, the more important the becoming. Elisha, he was called to do something. Uh, later on, he'd have this incredible prophetic ministry, miracles left, right, and center. It'd go on for the best part of 30 years. But first, he had to serve a 20-year apprenticeship. Now, all of us in the room, we're all called to do something different. That the call to do is absolutely unique to you. But for every single person in this room, the call to being is pretty much the same. The Bible tells us that because you are a human being made in the image of God... But because we're all flawed in some way, the first thing that happens is God calls you to become more like his son. God calls you to become a person of love, a person of justice, a person of wisdom, a person of self-control, a person of humility, a person of compassion, a person of mercy. And God says, 
I'm going to call you out of your condition of brokenness. I'm going to call you out of the place with all of the flaws you have, and I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit, and I want to empower you to be who you ought to be. It might take 20 years, but that's the first thing. It's a call that goes to every human being to be the kind of person that God has designed you to be. Now, if you're interested, you read about it in a number of places in the Bible. Matthew 9, for example, God says, I call everyone to repentance, which means to turn around. Instead of being a self-centered person, to have a God-centered life. He calls everybody to that. 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says, we're called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Every single one of us called to live more and more in the light. Ephesians 2 verse 10, just this incredible place where Paul says we are God's masterpiece. He uses a Greek word from which we get our word poem. What he's saying is God is the artist and you are his work of art. Think for a moment how an artist gets a vision for something incredible, a vision for something dynamic, a vision for something beautiful. And think of how that artist labors, doing everything possible, slaving away, going to incredible lengths to make that vision a reality. God is looking at you that same way. We are his masterpiece. We are his work of art. Which is why he calls us to be people who are full of love, full of joy, full of peace, full of patience. People who are full of kindness to others, full of goodness. That's Galatians 5, the fruit of having his Holy Spirit within us, from the inside, changing us, creating us into this masterpiece that reflects his glory to the world around us. Better yet, look at Jesus in the pages of the Gospels, walking around on the earth. You know, God is calling every single one of us to be more and more like him. That's the first thing. And secondly, it's not just the call to be, the call to become, there's the call to doing. After Elisha went through this 20-year apprenticeship, he eventually enters the scene as the prophet that God has called him to be. Now, we're not all prophets, but here's one thing the Bible does tell us. If you just take a look at the very top of the passage in 1 Kings 19, it's extremely interesting to me that God says to Elijah, I'm going to call these three people to do my will in the world. Remember, one of them was this guy called Hazael, a secular king of Syria. One of them is Jehu, who's going to be the king of Israel. One of them is Elisha. What does that mean? Well, does God only call people to formal ministry? Does he only call people to be church leaders? Does he only call people to be prophets or preachers? Absolutely not. God says, any person who comes and gives me their talents and their gifts, I will use those talents and those gifts to make you a unique instrument of my justice and my grace and my goodness in the world. That's the reason why in Ephesians 2 verse 10, Paul says, we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. 
you are created to do a whole lot of good things that God has already got planned. In your school, in your office, in your industry, in your business, in your hospital, where you live, in the arts, in the media, in politics. There is no secular spiritual divide. All of life, where God has placed you, is a context for you to live out his call on your life. There are certain people in the world that you are best placed to help. There there are certain deeds that only you can do. There are certain ways of bringing about justice and hope that only you can bring about. There are certain ways of testifying to God's grace that through the experience that you've had in life and the way that you were wired and made, only you can testify to. You see, when you come and answer the call to being, God will give you a specific call to doing. It's like you will have a mission in this world, a purpose, a destiny, a reason for living. But if you're not answering the call to being, you're not going to experience the call to doing. That's the first principle. Here's the second one. You don't have to understand fully to obey immediately. You don't have to understand fully to obey immediately. When God calls you to do something, you don't have to understand all the details to obey straight away. Verse 20, here's what happens. First, Elijah puts the cloak around him. Then what what does Elisha do? Well, Elisha left the oxen standing there, ran after Elijah and said to him, first, let me go and kiss my father and mother goodbye, then I'll go with you. Notice this, he didn't have to pray about it. He didn't have to write a lengthy list of pros and cons. Here are the reasons why I should. Here are the risks and the dangers, the reasons why I shouldn't. All he did was say, God, I don't know the details, but since I guess I believe you're in on this, I'll obey immediately. You don't have to understand fully to obey immediately. Because here's the way God will so often lead you. God will rarely give you all of the details. I believe God often strategically is vague in his directions to us. You and I, we want all the details, we want all the information up front. And I believe very often God would look at us and say, no, you can't handle all the details. If I showed you everything, you wouldn't show up. And so I'm just showing you the next step. In fact, God will often guide with just one word. Sometimes that is all God will give. And that needs to be enough to us. The Old Testament, for example, almost every time God was giving Moses directions, he could pretty much summarize his directions in one word, go. Moses, go. Moses, go and do this. Moses, go and do that. It's pretty much the same with Abraham. Go. Go to the land I will show you. Peter in the New Testament, on the occasion when Jesus was walking up to him on the water, Peter was like, hey, that's ridiculous. It's impossible to walk on water. But Jesus, if that's you, tell me to come. And Jesus gave him just one word. What was the word? He said, come. I'm not giving you all the details, I'm not explaining the physics behind this. Just one word, come. Some of you, 
you may just hear one word from God. I don't know what it will be, but in your marriage perhaps, maybe you're struggling right now, maybe you're thinking about leaving, and you hear one word, and that one word is stay. You don't have to understand completely to obey immediately, you stay. Some of you might have a health situation, the prognosis doesn't look good, or maybe it's for someone you love, someone close to you. God gives you just one word, and it's trust. You hang on to that word, and you trust, and you obey. Some of you, you've been hanging around the church for a while, and you're kind of starting to grow with God, but you're still observing. You're still on the edge looking in. Maybe God would give you one word. Commit. Commit. Don't just watch what God's doing. Get involved. Throw in your lot. Commit. Some of you, maybe you're praying about the future of your family, and you hear the word adopt or foster. You're like, whoa, 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 whoa. What age and from where? Boy or girl? I don't understand all the practicalities and the implications. You don't have to understand everything to take the next step. Some of you, even today, you're going to hear just one word from God. And you, in faith, are going to be crazy enough, ridiculous enough to say, I don't know all the details, I don't understand it all, but I don't have to understand fully to obey immediately. Principle number one, what was it? That's why you need to take notes, you see. So I might spring it on you like that. Principle number one was... Yeah, you're called to become something before you're called to do something. Principle number two... We don't have to understand fully to obey immediately. I think that's what the mumbling was saying. Principle number three, you know where it's going? Listen out for this one. Those God uses the most tend to be the ones that hold on to the least. Those God uses the most, very often the ones that hold on to the least. Just watch what Elisha does in verse 21. Elisha returned to his oxen. These animals, they're what brought his livelihood. What does the Bible say he did with the oxen? The Bible says he did what? He slaughtered them, he killed them, killed them dead. And what did he do with the plough? Yeah, set it on fire, he burnt the plow equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people to eat. And he set out to follow Elijah and became his assistant. Now, whichever way you look at this, it's pretty ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, it's like he's saying, I'm burning plan B. From now on, there is no plan B. There's only obey God, there's only plan A. And all honesty, I've got to tell you, as a dad, if my kids come home one day with that plan... I'm kind of saying, hey, you know, I'm proud of your faith and everything, but let's just try and keep your options open a bit. I mean, that's honestly what I'm thinking. You you know, go follow God by all means. I'm proud of you wanting to do that, but keep the cows and the plows because you never know when you might need to use them. But what you're going to see in the Bible is there are often times when people are so moved by God that they do ridiculous things to follow him. For example... Remember the occasion when Jesus first encountered Peter in Luke 5. Peter, he was having a bad fishing day. Jesus comes up and says, throw your nets on the other side. Peter's like, you you don't know what you're talking about. Jesus says, just do it. And he did it. And he caught so many fish, the net started breaking. He's like, who are you? 
this is amazing. I, I feel sinful in your presence. You're the Lord. All, the, all this stuff. And Jesus looked straight at him, caught his eye, and said, hey, from now on, you don't have to just catch fish. Now you can fish for people. And the Bible says something that is just crazy. It's as crazy as the burn the plows and kill the, the, kill the cows. The Bible says that the disciples left everything. You know, we just kind of skim over that not even think about it. You just contextualize that to your life. Leave my job? You know, I trained for this. I spent years getting qualified for this. Leave my comfort? Leave my family? Leave where I live? They left everything to follow him. There are some of you that God is going to speak to and give you... There you go. What did I tell you? (laughs) There are some of you. God's trying to get through to you. He wants to give you a plow-burning faith. Let me just clarify. You do need to make sure God is speaking to you. You don't just go in and say, oh, I'm sick of my job. Walk in and say, I hate you all and burn the building down. That's not what I'm talking about. Okay, that, I'm not talking about you feeling bored, frustrated, disappointed, hurt, fancying a change. I'm talking about when you know that you know that you know in your heart, with all integrity and honesty, that God is calling you to leave where you are and go where he wants you to go. Sometimes when you're so convinced, you just burn the bridge back because something has happened in you and you're never going to be the same again. You can't go back because you know that God is calling you forward. Some of you, even now, God is going to give you a plow-burning face where deep down you're willing to do whatever it takes to follow God to the next place. Very quickly, before we finish, share just a couple of stories of people that I know that had plow-burning faith. Got a friend somewhere else. His dad had a very successful business. And his dad generously wanted to pass the business on to his son. Problem was, his son didn't want to take it on. But his dad said, look, I can make you very, very rich. And the dad would have been right. But my friend, all he wanted to do, for some reason, was become a teacher. And so his dad gave him that business. He tried his best, and for a period of time, he was successful. But deep down, he was miserable, because that wasn't what he felt called to do. And so very respectfully... After a lot of thought and prayer, advice from others, he went up to his dad and said, look, dad, I love you, I honor you, I just can't do this anymore. It's like he had to burn some plows to leave where he was so he could go to where God wanted him to go. He left this incredibly lucrative career to go and become a teacher. Although it hasn't been without its challenges, I don't know a happier and more fulfilled person right now. Got another friend who was struggling again and again, addicted to pornography. And he was able to overcome it for a while. He got his computers monitored and blocked certain things. But then smartphones came out. 
It's like the temptation was there every single day. They try to block things and block things and block things. Then you find another way round it, another way round it, another way round it. It's like whenever there was an open door anywhere, he'd go through that door and look at things that were hurtful to him and hurtful to his face. And so we talked about it. I said, well, what do you think you should do? And he said, well, look, the only thing I can think to do is to get rid of this phone. But you've got to have this kind of phone. I said, do you really? I mean, do you think people managed to survive for like thousands of years without that kind of phone? It's like the, the, the lights came on and, and he decided to get rid of his new iPhone. He was basically saying, I'm burning this plow I'm not going to let it take me down. And now he uses the cheapest, most basic phone you can get. He hates his phone, but he loves his purity. I'll tell you, I'm so full of respect for anyone who would say, I'm not going to let anything keep me from being the person that God wants me to be. Now, I know we don't normally do this kind of stuff around here, but hey, we had that crazy film at the beginning and I'm feeling very liberated. I'll be slightly awkward for you so bear with me but would you just look at the person sitting next to you and say maybe you need to burn a plow okay? Okay that's all you don't need to say anything else. Now I want you to look at the person on the other side who is kind of your second choice and I want you to tell them Maybe you need to burn a plow, okay? Now look, I don't know what it would be in your life, but if there is anything keeping you from following God with all your heart, what is stopping you burning that plow today? Maybe you're fearful. You know, fear is often a sign that God is about to do something immense. So press through. Remember, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Have courage. Some of you, you're holding on to something that kind of keeps you secure. Listen, to step towards your destiny, you have to very often step away from your security. God's going to speak to a number of you and give you the faith to believe that he's calling you to something new. It might take a while, because you're called to become something before you're called to do something. And that can require a tremendous amount of patience, 20 years for Elisha. But you don't have to understand fully to obey immediately, because those that God uses the most tend to be those who hold on to the least. I want to invite you to stand if you would. We're going to pray. Now before we pray, I want to ask you a couple of questions. I want you to think about them really, really seriously before you respond. Then I want to pray for you. First of all, I want to ask when you think about this, don't, don't just respond in the moment, think about it. I wonder how many of you who are followers of Jesus want so much 
for God to stretch your faith that you are willing to look ridiculous, to leave things that you thought were important your whole life, to not let anything hold you back from living out God's call for your life. I wonder how many of you today would say, I don't want anything to hold me back. I want ridiculous faith to obey God. Even when it doesn't make sense, I want to trust Him.